Hello listeners, it's me, Nicole. We have a very big show today with Caitlin Doty and special guest Beth Pickens, author of Making Art During Fascism. But speaking of making art during fascism, I have news, which is that I have started a Patreon page. Patreon is a place where you can go and donate as little as $2 a month to become a patron of your favorite artist and support their work and their projects. My work includes this podcast. Um, Also, I will list all the projects I'm working on this year, a lot of books, including stuff about gender for kids. And if you become a member of this patron community, you will have access to an exclusive feed of unpublished diary comics, process posts, and something called Ponyo's Friend Club. You can find it through my website, NicoleJGeorges.com. Thank you for looking at it. It's an honor to be a feminist, Arab-American, queer, anti-fascist voice during these horrifying times. Now, on to the show. Sagittarian Matters, death, feminism, grieving rituals, and living your best life with mortician Caitlin Doty and special guest Capricorn Beth Pickens. Stay tuned. On inauguration day last week, Special guest co-host Beth Pickens joined me in a trek across town to meet my favorite mortician, Caitlin Doty. Caitlin Doty is a death theorist, the woman behind the Ask a Mortician video series, and the founder of Order of the Good Death. She's also the author of an exceptional book called Smoke It's in Your Eyes and Other Lessons from the Crematory. You can find her at the funeral home, Undertaking LA, or online at theorderofthegooddeath.com. But best thing you can do right this second is look her up before you listen to this interview and get a picture in your mind of the shiniest Pantene hair you have ever imagined. Enjoy. Caitlin Doty, welcome to Sagittarian Matters. Yeah, thank you for having me. We're here in your beautiful apartment. Yes, I've been waiting for you all day. Thank just you. Just sitting by the door. Like, <laughs> just... when are the podcasts getting here? <laughs> I can't wait. And then Beth Pickens is with me. Special... As sort of a hype podcast support system. As my hype man. Are yeah. you just going to go like, what? <laughs> She's the dog. Oh, okay. <laughs> She's the, the hype man. She's the dog pound. So she'll also, if you say something really good, she'll go, <laughs> You know what I've been into recently is the really terrible air horn noise. Like, <laughs> That's like an MTV jock jam. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Are you going to put that in your videos? Maybe. Yeah, it's it's the worst. There's a really good thing called CBS Bangers. Have you mm-hmm. ever heard of this? No. It's like a just a SoundCloud that will have like the idea is a mix that would be on at CBS. <laughs> so it'll have like a um, Lionel Richie song or like a you know the Wave sort of song, and then in the middle it will go CBS Banger. <laughs> Cool. That's really great. You can see I've been alone all day just waiting for you to arrive. I can tell you're a writer. Working, you're writing. working on my talking points for the big podcast. But also, of course, we want to talk to you about your hair. Oh, well, yeah. I mean, that is that is the brand. I mean, it's super shiny. Thank you. You're welcome. It has no flyaways. And Beth Pickens and I both are a nest of flyaways. 
Yeah. If I may bring you Yeah, well, my... your hair is so well, healthy. The, it just moves really healthily. It has a shine and a halo. <laughs> and it's so thick. It is so thick. I actually trimmed it yesterday. And the interesting thing about my hair is that it's so thick that you can trim just a half an inch and it looks like like a New York subway system rat died in oh. your apartment. It's so it's such a thick yeah. mass of hair on the ground, mm-hmm. which is really what makes it work. It, what, I think a lot of people try and do the blunt Betty Page bangs, mm-hmm. but it doesn't work out because my instinct would be that there's more of a curl to their hair mm-hmm. than they think there is, or also it's just too thin. So throughout the day, you know, your face gets a little more oily, it starts parting, it starts not looking as good. But if you have so much hair like I do, you can kind of build the wall right. down your forehead and you're in a pretty good position. You did know, you learn this in mortuary school? I did not learn this in mortuary This has actually been my haircut. When I was probably 15 or 16, I got a haircut from my mother's hairdresser that shaved the whole bottom part of Mm. my head, which I guess was sort of relevant at the time, but was just horrifying. And then I went back and after it grew out a little bit and was like, let's not do that again. He was like, you know what would look really good on you? Just blunt. He called them China doll bangs. Mm -hmm. Um, And I was like, well, okay. And then that was just it forever. Mm -hmm. And so this has been my hair since I was... 16. That's yeah. great. Did you ever read comics by Dame Darcy? Do you no. know that is? Oh my god. I have to find or send or give you one of her comics. She does kind of like goth, gothy sort of comics. She was really big in the 90s. A lot of like um, cross hatching and like, mm. like she does really shiny bangs. I'm showing right now. Like she'll draw someone's hair and there's always like a shine spot mm. of like really shiny, shiny, shiny on her bangs. And it's such a inspiration to me visually oh, yeah, but yeah. your bangs are like very in line with mm-hmm. like a dame darcy cartoon oh you like she does well thank you you're welcome anyway uh beth pickens and i are both here and <laughs> anyway after that i want to say i mean we talked about your hair we can talk about your hair the whole time but we have too many things to talk about in a short amount of time so many things on this very mournful day yeah oh I, gosh yeah um and we don't have to use this as a framing you can edit this out but i was wondering how are you doing on this last day of the obama administration you know, uh, I wouldn't say well, but um, so Obama for me, he was a weird kid who grew up in Hawaii and wasn't local. And I was a weird kid who grew up in Hawaii and wasn't local and had to think a lot about race and had to think a lot about identity growing up. And I certainly don't regret that. And I think it framed who I am. But I feel in that way, like I, and I think many people feel this, but I feel a connection to Obama. I feel like we had this unique experience, and I think a lot of Americans share that with him. And they're just, and Michelle, and Malia, and Sasha, and they're just such a beautiful family, free of scandal, and full of love, and self-discipline, and intelligence, that it's really, really hard to imagine giving them up for anyone, mm-hmm. and especially not for the horrific clown show mm-hmm. surrealism that we are about to enter. The sentient Cheeto. Right, the sentient Cheeto. Yeah, it's really hard to think about that, but um, I don't know if you guys feel the same way, but I think there's been, I feel more productive than ever in the last two months. Like I've never been so productive in my own work as I have been the last two months. Because in having these conversations with people, it's really thinking about, okay, well, what what can you offer? What can you do? 
And for me, yeah, sure, it's like calling a senator, but I'm not going to, my own work is already trying to open up a relationship with death and understand how death is influencing our lives and understand how we can not let the fear of death rule our lives and rule our politics in a really awful way and destructive way. And so if I'm already on that path, I need to keep going down that path and just work 10 times harder than I've ever worked before. And I think all of us who are activists or advocates in some way just need to double and triple down on the work that we're doing. Mm-hmm. I agree. It's, that's very in line with Beth Pickens um, with your workshop and pamphlet. She's a, she works with artists as like an arts consultant and arts therapist. And she wrote this um, pamphlet after the election called Making Art During Fascism. Oh, oh that's and, great. I love the line. This is very in line with your pamphlet. Yes. <laughs> a pamphlet here. She's a pamphleteer. Just like Jonathan Swift. She will not claim it as a zine. It's no. only a pamphlet. a pamphlet. No, I like the pamphlet. It's a pamphlet. It's Sorry, tell me more oh, about no, no. the pamphlet. But, the, but in the pamphlet, it's like all these artists who are like, what do we do? Do we just stop being artists and only right. become activists or become lawyers or something? And it's like, no, start where you are. Right. Start with what you yeah, have. Exactly. Yeah. Which oh, I perfect. think people yeah. outside of even in the outside of creative fields have the same sort of knee-jerk reaction. Like, what do I do now? It has to be different than what I did. Whatever I do or love is enough it's got to be different right well I think there's a way to look at it as like okay so um, the group that I have the nonprofit that I have is the order of the good death and behind the scenes we were always having these conversations about social justice about the larger implications of politicized deaths abortion black lives matter etc and I don't think that we were very public about it, or as public as we thought we were being with those ideas and values and goals. And then after the election, it's like, we have to be explicit. Like everyone who does any kind of work adjacent to this in some way has to make sure they're being explicit. Uh, well, Beth has a question for you about feminism, but before that, I so one of the things when Jesse was talking about you. <laughs> Hi, Jesse. Our friend in Montreal. He was saying how um, he was commenting on your ability for like empathy. I don't know if like someone in Canada was like somebody in my family died or something, and you got to like turn on the mortician charm of or just like having empathy. Oh, someone, I would hate anyone in Canada to die. That's <laughs> terrible. <laughs> like, I hope that didn't happen. <laughs> but like that that thing of like being able to like have empathy and connect to people, and it seems like in your line of work, you have to be able to empathize with a lot of different kinds of people that have nothing in common with you except for the fact that their loved one has died. So I wonder how, after the election, does it change your your ability to empathize? Or like, how do you, how do those things intersect? Hmm. Do you know what I mean? Like, That's a good question, because I think a lot of us after the election went through this question of, okay, people who voted for Trump, like, do they even deserve empathy? Like, yeah. Do we even deserve, like, are, do we all have to just read Hillbilly Elegy and feel really connected to people in deep red states and and I don't know that that's it seems like we can empathize with their plight and their feelings and attempt to understand them but still fight for what we actually you know what we actually believe to be the power structures that exist in the country and continue on that road and fight for the people who still who are going to need our help more than ever yeah whether it's lgbtq people disabled people people of color immigrants whoever it is you know i feel bad that you lost your coal mining job i do and i understand that things are not the same for you but you still voted for a racist Mm -hmm. and a bigot and like a real bad guy and you found it in your heart to ignore all those things and we can't find it in our hearts to ignore all those things and so that's where the real empathy empathy and work has to go yeah do you at work do you have to like 
hang up so like if some the people come to your place of business that are right wing that are like my my hippy dippy like niece died and wrote in her will that she wanted this you know seagrass casket so here we are no not necessarily because really it would be more it would be more the opposite it's really more younger people who would come to my funeral home because they know of me or they know of the work that i do and they would do it for their father or for their uncle or for whoever it is mm-hmm. it would be you know we have i haven't had the experience yet of having someone come in and say like well i don't believe in any of this hippie <laughs> green funeral <laughs> stuff but like this is what little carrie wanted you know that has not happened as of yet knock on wood Knock on wood. Yeah. Well, some, I mean, it would be an interesting character to deal with, probably, but it's not happened yet. Well, someday I hope to send my own my own family in there. I don't think that my mom would actually come in. I think probably my sister would deal. Question: Do you think about the way people would look like dead when you see them? No, I don't. That would be that would be a really fun quirk. Um, <laughs> I can't say that I do that though. Um, no, but I definitely what I definitely do is I think about people that I love or that I'm really close to. Sometimes I think about taking care of their body. I think about how I would make that happen. I think about something a lot of people don't think about is the legal connections between people and who actually is in charge of bodies. So if we were best friends Mm -hmm. and you died, I would have no control over your body at all. So mm-hmm. it's not like I could just call your father or your partner, whoever your legal next of kin is, and say, like, no, I, I want her body. And I want to do this magical ceremony, and I want to bury her in a hole in the desert and scatter her ashes to the wind, whatever it is. Yeah. I don't have any control over that. Yeah. So having those conversations with people, thinking about what you really want, figuring out who's actually in charge of your body and who's going to be doing the funeral ceremony is really important because it might not be the person you want it to be. That's horrifying. Mm-hmm. It is. And that's and that's especially important like in the trans community or in certain communities, chosen family communities. It's super important. And in every state, there is some sort of advanced directive or some living will or some way that you can say... I want to assign someone else control over my death that's maybe not your weird old mom or, you know, your bigot sister or whoever it is. There's a way to assign it to someone else. Yeah. Um, After I read your book about working at the crematory and I read about embalming, I wanted, I don't remember if I actually texted my mom, but I wanted to call her immediately and be like, do not get embalmed. I know that you're probably going to get embalmed, but don't get embalmed, please. Well, I mean... If you're probably in charge of her body, though, I think one of my sisters might might get that, that might live have, closer to her. But the, yeah, the well, ball could fall to me if the ball she, unless she specifically um, unless she specifically puts it on your sister or or has her sign the paper or she assigns it through an advance directive. It's whatever the siblings in total want, which. Which could be that we just throw her in a dumpster. Sorry, mom. <laughs> Sorry. Not Love you, mom. The power of editing. Love you, mom. <laughs> no, leave that in. Let it stand. Happy it'll be, it'll be an interesting Thanksgiving. <laughs> well, that brings up something that I really wanted to hear you talk about. Um, are we still good? Yeah. And that is 
I'm so impressed with how your whole practice is so grounded in feminism, you know, and, and I've heard you talk about it in your videos in really overt ways, the ways in which the feminization of the death industry and how more women are now attending mortuary school than men and what that means for economy and also about the state and who has authorship over a body. But it only recently occurred to me because I, I read your book when it first came out or I listened to it first, then I read it. And I watch all the videos and I'm really into everything that you do, but it took so long for it to occur to me that this is an area of feminism that it had never dawned on me, that authority over one's own body, the ability to have control over one's own body doesn't end with your life. <laughs> and that because I didn't want to think about death, like most people don't, I never thought about how does that apply to the death and dying experience. And I was like, oh my God, this is a huge edge of feminism I had never even occurred, I'd never even thought about. That's a really great summary of all of, all of the connections there. And from the very beginning, I was getting people saying, I think at the very beginning when I started, when I was like 27 and just making videos, it was more like, you're a young lady, this is blowing my mind. You know, Huffington Post does an article like, can you believe young lady doing death? Like you know, lady and corpses. That was kind of the tone of things. <laughs> and then as time went on and the movement, such as it is, grew more, the questions became more, why are there so many ladies? Like, what are all these ladies doing here when you have death salons or death cafes or these taxidermy classes or some event connected to mortuary school attendance? Why so many ladies? And when you ask people in the funeral industry currently, you're likely to get the most soul-crushing answer, which is women just have this caring edge Ugh, yeah. that really, when you're dealing with a grieving family, you want a woman just to be there to have the, the woman's touch mm -hmm. for grief. And of course, that answer made me want to gouge my eyes out immediately. So I did, on my own, really try and figure out the best answer for that. And of course, I'm not there yet because it's a it's a journey, but I think my sense would be that with the history of the death industry, women, before it was an industry, in the United States, people just took care of their own bodies for hundreds of years. And it was a feminized task. It was a task that occurred in the home. You know, the neighbor dudes would make the casket out of you know, pine wood or whatever you had, but actually washing the body, dressing the body, laying it out in the parlor, that was a feminized task that occurred in the home. And then at the turn of the 20th century, you have death becoming an industry in the United States. You have men coming in and wearing their suits and saying, the dead body is dangerous. It's a public health hazard. You shouldn't, you shouldn't have it at home. Let us take it as the professionals, put chemicals into it and pay us. Thank you so much. And that is only gotten more and more as time. The professionalization has only increased and cemented into the culture over the past hundred years or so. And what I think is happening with women specifically is they're looking at this and saying, hey, wait a second, something was taken from us here. The act of taking care of your own dead whether you're a man or a woman, is a sacred task. It's, it's moving, it will change your life, and it will change the tone of your grief to be able to have that interaction. 
and they're really not standing for it anymore. They're saying, wait a second, no, 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 I want to be involved in this. I want to be involved in my own family, and I want to be involved as a deaf worker to have this experience. And I don't want it to just be a man in a suit who doesn't know my mom, or doesn't know my grandma, or my partner, or my child, or whoever it is. And so, yeah, my instinct would be that it's women trying to reclaim their place with death care. And there's also other narratives, like the fact that so many women are involved in the green burial movement. And I think that has to do with decomposition and wanting to decompose and wanting your body to go back into the earth where it came from and your atoms to shoot out into the earth where it came from. Because, you know, just preserving the body doesn't appeal to everyone. Mm -hmm. And it's not just, for some people, they don't necessarily need that kind of safety or that perception of safety. Like, I'm in a sealed box and I'm preserved forever, which is not true, to be, to be honest. But they, they're interested in decomposition. They're interested in nature. They're interested in our connection with the larger world. Mm. And women now being able to have these voices of dissent are going to use them. And they're going to use them by getting into the industry. They're going to use them by choosing not to use a funeral director when death occurs. Um, they're going to use them to become midwives or to become taxidermists or to become coroners or to become funeral directors or whatever it is to be closer to death. Mm. That was a long answer. Yeah. It's, it's, it's so like a monologue. So, <laughs> what I assume also happened with birth around the same time that sort of a, a male expert in a hospital tells you what has to happen to the body. Right. Yeah, I think I think the parallels between the natural birth movement and the natural death movement couldn't be clearer. Right. And it's interesting, I just read an article on BuzzFeed last week about rock star doula. Have you heard of this? No. Apparently there's this schism in the doula community between the older school doulas who you know, are very volunteer, very community oriented, very everybody deserves a doula. And there's this new offshoot group called, I think they're called the rock star doulas, but basically their idea is you should be making money, it should be a luxury item to have a doula, we use the same sales techniques that Mary Kay uses, Whoa. you should all have your Cadillacs and you should be rock star doulas. Mm. And of course they, there's no love lost between the two groups. I can't imagine that ever happening with death, but I'm sure they couldn't imagine it have happening in birth, so right. we'll see how that goes. Holy cow. Um, I'm sure you get asked this all the time, but what do you want when you die? Oh, well, what I want realistically and what I want, you know, emotionally and truthfully are different things. So realistically, I just want a natural burial. I want a hole dug into the ground and my lightly shrouded body put in, dirt goes on top, I rot underneath the earth. Um, really what I want, though, is to be eaten by animals. Really? I would love for my body to be laid out and consumed by vultures, by, by um, you know, I want to be carrion, yeah. you know, basically, um, because I have eaten animals in my life, and I want them to be able to eat me. But that is not legal currently, mm. at least not in the United States. But we'll see. A lot can happen between now and my actual death. Mm -hmm. What if I give a map of where you're buried to several animals? Right. And say, right. Like, say I don't know what you're going to do, but I'm going to open the car door. Yeah, like, yo, yo, bear. <laughs> like, here you go. You're like, Here's you a shovel. Up. You right. have claws? You, whatever. You come upon some coyotes <laughs> yeah. and like a pack of vultures, and you're like, yo, guys. 
slide slide the coordinates across the table. You didn't. I'd hear be it. fine with that. Yeah. Really? I, that's, I would appreciate if you would do that. Okay. Well, we'll see what we can get do. Get on it. Has it changed for you? Do you find on the way over we were talking about? Do we have a will? Neither one of us do. Mine became null and void for long, complicated reasons I won't go into. LegalZoom.com. <laughs> but um, I was thinking so much about what I want now is very different than what I wanted mm-hmm. 10 years ago, and I imagine that will keep transforming. Have you yeah. noticed that in your life? Absolutely. I have a. I wrote a death plan this past year, and I sent it out to my mom and my friends and everyone who needed to know, and it had things about what I wanted my wake to look like, how I wanted my social media handled, how I wanted my burial handled, and that will probably change in in two years, three years, and I'll have to do it again or update what I have. Um, but I remember at the very beginning when I first started working in the funeral industry, maybe nine years ago at this point, I wanted to be cremated, and I wanted my ashes put in like a Caitlin reliquary. Like I wanted to have like a bunch of my more interesting antiques kept on like a wall shrine. I don't know who was going to adopt this wall shrine in my life, but a little wall shrine with some of the more interesting things where people could come and like visit my ashes and maybe like poke them if they wanted and just interact with, with my cremated remains. But I don't, I don't want that anymore. It seems like it seems wrong to, to me to leave things behind. Mm. I think it would be better to have everybody just come in and take whatever they wanted from the walls of my apartment and take it into their own home and use it, donate the rest, and then make sure my body disappears into the earth. That seems um, less attached to the world to me. I've always had pretty much the same plan since high school. Mm-hmm. When in sociology class, we found out about traditional Jewish burials. Mm. And then also, I think that we saw footage of like when Martin Luther King Jr. died. Like, I, we were talking about just different people's funerals and people um, bringing it down to the earth. And then, like, the kind of humbleness of like Orthodox Jews or different Jews getting like wrapped up in like just a basic shroud and then put in like a very simple, degradable box and mm. just put in the earth without embalming and everything. And I was like, that sounds great. Something we were talking about recently was that when you're talking to funeral homes and they, it's very hard to get a funeral home if they don't already know about having a funeral at home or having a wake at home or the family interacting with the body or being involved, they might try and talk you out of it immediately and persistently until you give up and just get the body embalmed or have the wake at the funeral home or whatever they want you to do. And one way to to combat that is to ask them, what if we were Jewish? Or what if we were Muslim? What would, would you be telling us the same thing? Mm. And see what they say. Because, you know, if you ha- it's almost like if you have a strong religious belief, they're like, oh, of course you can do mm. all of these very natural, simple things. Mm-hmm. But if you're just, you know, if you're Christian or you're secular somehow, you have to get the embalming and the casket and it has to cost 10000 dollars and it has to, mm-hmm. which, no, of course it doesn't. I love that your place is so affordable. It is, yeah. That's... Was that part of your mission statement or one of your core values? Yeah, oh, absolutely it was. We are, we're a nonprofit funeral home. We're actually the only nonprofit. Um, we're actually the only nonprofit funeral home in Los Angeles that's not connected to a synagogue, mm-hmm. interestingly uh, enough. Yeah. Um, and that was very much a part of it. And we're actually working this year toward more initiatives for low-income families. And that may be, you know, donate more um, for your own funeral so others can have a less expensive funeral. Mm-hmm. It may be donations from the community because all throughout history there have been 
things like burial clubs and things where a community would come together to help bury those less fortunate. And now we leave it entirely up to the state, Mm -hmm. which means that it's really impersonal. Down at the coroner's office in Los Angeles, they'll cremate thousands of bodies over the course of the year, and the unclaimed ones will be dumped in a mass burial pit Mm -hmm. at the end of the year. Which is which is sad. I mean, it's not you know it's the way they have to do it because mm-hmm. you can't afford in Los Angeles the the number of indigent dead and unclaimed dead. They couldn't give beautiful ritual individualized burial to each body. It just wouldn't be possible. But everyone we can prevent from having that to happen to the better. That's awesome. Yeah. to be a Seinfeld. But have you ever noticed that I never try to sell you Blue Apron on the podcast? Or that we do not disparage and bemoan trips to the post office in favor of stamps.com? Well, it is because we have no advertisers. Zero. Producer Chris, producer Ponyo, and myself do this out of the goodness of our hearts because we like it. If you would like to tip producer Chris Sutton, who dedicates hours to this series every week, Please, 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 please send your tip of $5, $10, who knows how much, that's your business, via PayPal, to hornetleg at gmail.com. That is hornet, like the insect, leg, like one of his appendages, at gmail.com. If you do this, we will read your name on the podcast. Isn't that exciting? We may have advertisers someday, and we'll rant and rave about free sex toys and mattresses and blue apron and whatever but in the meantime thank you we appreciate your support and i look forward to saying your name on the podcast producer ponyo looks forward to it too that was ponyo's voice don't be scared bye i have to say i went and saw the catacombs this is not on my list i went and saw the catacombs in paris last year and i was listening to the walking tour I'm sure you've been there, mm-hmm. and I I did t- I touched a bone. Don't That's cool. Anybody, but I, I won't tell anyone. Thanks. I touched a bone too. You did because you can't because you just they're just there. <laughs> can't not. Do but it. I was listening to the walking tour because of course, and then the only part that grossed me out was when they were talking about before they moved the bodies there, um, how the neighbors who lived near what are the like the places where they had like just like the heaps of bodies mm-hmm. from the plague. The neighbors, their um, like milk would curdle and like things would turn in their house really fast just because of like the disease in the air and their proximity to the piles of like decomposing plague bodies. That was the only part of the walking tour where I was like, ugh! <laughs> like, just thinking like the milk, like you're like pouring milk for your child it's curdling as you're... Well, there's definitely a lot of historical misconception. I'm sure there's some truth to that specifically because the plague is a wildly infectious disease, mm-hmm. but a lot of what the funeral industry is built on is the misconception that disease floats off dead bodies and through the air. It was called miasma. Mm -hmm. And the idea is that, you know, if you have an overcrowded graveyard or if you have any sort of garbage pile or sewer pile, that the rot air that's flowing off of it is what causes disease. Mm -hmm. And of course, now we know that it's germ theory and that it's little tiny organisms that we can't see, but they didn't know that at the time Mm -hmm. in the funeral industry 
the idea of the public health of the sanitized body was really helped along by the fact that a lot of people believed that deadness was floating off dead things Mm -hmm. and that's where disease came from and you know there are still situations with wildly infectious bodies like an ebola body or if there really was the black plague or if there was you know, avian bird flu outbreak or something. Mm-hmm. No, you shouldn't be hanging around those bodies because there is potential. But the normal dead body is totally chill, totally safe. No milk is getting curdled whatsoever. <laughs> the wine is not turning. Nope, nope. Your babies are fine. Yeah. You don't have to hide them in the barn. Put a bandana around. <laughs> Hold your breath. I love that for your nonprofit funeral home, mm-hmm. Undertaking LA. The website is so clear and transparent. I was thinking, oh my gosh, if somebody died in my home, I could go to this website and actually have clear laid out answers about what do you do? And Mm -hmm. one of the answers is, did they have avian flu or bubonic plague? No, you don't have to do anything. Mm -hmm. You can go to bed. Right. You can put some ice packs on them. They will be fine till the morning. You can sleep and then make choices in the morning. But the, the fact that you make something that is so clouded purposefully by a business industry and make it so clear and transparent is so transformative. Thank you. We're actually working on, you know, this year we want to make it even clearer. Our goal is like, how much can we make this? Ad? You should know our prices immediately. You should know what we do immediately. You should know all of the steps immediately. You should know whether you want to use us immediately. You know, when someone dies or someone is dying, don't be wasting time trying to decipher what you need from a funeral home and what they're going to offer you and how much it's going to cost. It should be totally clear. There's no legal requirement at present for funeral homes to have their price lists on their website. So there are all sorts of, with the Federal Trade Commission, there are all sorts of rules about how your price list has to be laid out and the disclosures you have to make. For example, you have to say that embalming is never legally required. You have to say that there's no evidence that a sealing casket, an expensive sealing casket, actually, you know, prevents you from decomposing forever. You know, you can't make any of these ridiculous claims. And that's all good, but they haven't really updated it for the internet age. So you're still kind of allowed to do what you want on your website as a funeral home. Mm-hmm. So thank you. I mean, like, it's such a, like, geeky thing. But I'm like, thank you for your website compliment. Like, we worked very hard on <laughs> yeah, our, the design on our funeral home website. It, it feel, it's like so, the, it, it, I was so impressed with how much design is brought into it. Yeah, we definitely try and do So I, I mean, I designed it, but it was like, from a template. It wasn't like I hand hewn, you know, the website. But yeah, we definitely wanted to make it really clean and really, um, you know, because there is an element to the death movement and the death positive movement that is a lot of throwback to Victoriana and throwback to um, these visual death cultures of the past. And that's really fascinating and people love that stuff. But when someone dies now who's 60, they're not necessarily looking for a website that's like filled with post-mortem Victorian photographs and filled with, you know, hair jewelry, although there is hair jewelry on our website. Mm. But, um, you know, they're not as interested in that as much as they are just like a clear, clean, obvious explanation of what the services are, what we can do for them and how much it's going to cost. In your time working professionally, what, how have you observed any cultural shifts in attitudes and practices? Well, it's somewhat hard for me to judge because I'm smack in the middle of it. So everything for everything's going to be skewed for me because I am seeing what I want to see change. And when you have a funeral home that's specifically like, keep your own dead body, choose a green funeral, 
I'm going to get those people. So the people who come to our funeral home are a self-selecting crowd. They already know who I am. They know what the work is. They know what they want. This is not a typical, I mean, we hardly, I don't think we've had more than two or three clients that have just shown up out of no, nowhere and have no idea. Oh, we just thought you were a funeral home. You know, that's really rare. So my perception of this is going to be skewed, but I have friends who work at big corporate funeral homes in Los Angeles, and they say that there is a significant uptick in people wanting to be involved in some way. And whether that's just coming into the wake and saying, can we do my sister's lipstick? Or can we help do her hair? And in some situations, the funeral directors are really against that. They don't want the person to be involved at all. And it's so baffling to me because as a funeral director, your job is to help that family find comfort and connection and address their grief. And if you're holding on to this idea that what makes you professional is you know how to put lipstick on a corpse, which is something that a monkey could do, you could do it, I could do it. If you know how to put on lipstick, you know how to do it. You know, this is not rocket science here. If that's your idea of what professionalism is and not actually helping the family through this period, you're doing it wrong. What is your advice to young morticians? Ooh, that's a good question. Um, I mean, there's, there's really a couple different ways your advocacy could go. If you believe in all the stuff that, that we stand for, if you believe in family-involved death care, if you believe in green death care, if you believe in pushing the boundaries into new, you know, making sure that mushroom burial suits and that composting and that alkal- aquamation, alkaline hydrolysis and all these new death technologies, if you want these things to be available, you have a couple ways to go about it. You can work outside the industry, although there's not much of a career there at this point. Um, being a death midwife or a death doula. Um, But if you want to actually go to mortuary school and work within the industry, it's not going to be fun for a lot of years, but we need people in the trenches. We need people in there, especially smart young women. We need them in there and we need them working hard and we need them, you know, suffering the slings and arrows of sexism from the old traditional funeral boss dude. And, you know, that's the stuff that they're going to face, to be honest. And they should know that going in. I'm not trying to trick anybody into going into the funeral industry. But if they can stick it out, they're going to be the ones who take over the funeral home. They're going to be the ones that take over the business. They're going to be the ones who eventually make the decisions. And it's always so interesting to me to see, you know, on funeral director message boards or various things, whenever I come up or close associates of mine come up to see some people being like, you know what, I think this is great. Like the public should know, trans, you know, should have transparency. Of course we want to tell the public what we do. Of course we want to prove our worth through transparent action, give them what they want. Like what's the harm in her doing this? And then you have the other side, which is just this harpy is, hates her own profession. She's self-loathing. Mm-hmm. She, one recently, which really got to me was, this is why people think the funeral industry is corrupt and crooked it's like oh really like people just were super into the funeral industry and then i came along and filled their head with lies and like this is where we are now you know it's corrupt yeah your non-profit what do you think you're trying your to do with transparent this? non-profit <laughs> ways of helping people and be involved in death yeah that's what and that's corruption. why that's why they think it's corrupt because yeah the funeral industry as a traditional industry people were just totally enamored with Oh, and yeah. loved desperately. And then I came and mm-hmm. told them how to ask for a direct cremation. And then Everything it all crumbled around them. The castle walls crumbled. 
I never even thought about any of this until I listened to your book. Mm-hmm. And it was so great because it was. I did have that kind of feminist moment like Beth Biggins. I keep calling Mary Potter in front of you. I'm sorry. That's, Mary that, Potter. That's our nickname, that's our nickname for, for each other. Oh, for each Mary other. Potter. That's she's, cute. She's visiting me. Well, I like how you also just call her Beth Pickens. Beth Pickens. Oh, yeah. Beth there's Pickens. no, there's no, it's never just Beth. If it's Beth, people are like, Pickens? Like, it's, just, it's almost like a frantic you mean immediate. Beth Pickens? Yeah. yeah. Like it's just I'll call like, you Beth Pickens, too. Extra, that's okay. <laughs> it's extra syllables at the end of their name, at the end of your name. Um, but I just, I never thought about it, really. Like, I never thought about things like, like, I just rewatched one of your videos about, like, people sewing the mouth shut. Mm-hmm. Or, like, the mouth guard kind of thing that you put in someone's mouth or like what you have to do to keep their eyeballs closed like all the different things that you have to do I never you know you don't you don't really think about it no well there's no you do I do yes <laughs> all day every day um, there's no reason to for most people there's no. no reason because the funeral industry has done an excellent job of hiding it but more than that people just aren't dropping dead all the time like they used to before the 20th century. Mm. It's hard to even imagine what it was like just 100 years ago, 200 years ago, where any sort of disease just took you out. You know, you had seven brothers and sisters and three of them would be dead before age eight. Yeah. And you wouldn't, you certainly wouldn't have great grandparents. You maybe would have grandparents if you're lucky. You maybe only would have one parent. You know, it's just completely different and death was around us all the time. And no one is suggesting we go back to that. No one's like, oh, you know what would really help us get in touch with our own deaths? If people were just dying all the time. Like, of course, we don't want that. We want people to die older. We want people to die as, as want to stay healthy as long as possible. But there is something lost in that. There is something lost in not having tangible evidence of your own mortality around you. Not having the reality of death be around you and it also makes it when somebody does die when someone gets into a car accident when they're 21 or someone dies by suicide in their early 30s it makes it so much more of a rent and a despair and a tear in the community because people are like wait death is a thing like death is a thing that can happen and it's so shocking and it hurts all that much more and if we are having better discussions about it to begin with it's not going to ever stop the grief from happening, but we can grieve in a, in a more healthy, open way. So you talk about the rituals around death and grief and how performing these rituals, like bathing your own dead, taking care of your own dead, can help, can help with your grief process. Yeah, I think they can, especially in a secular way, mm-hmm. because we don't have secular rituals around death. These have not come into being yet. And even... You know, even Catholics, even Jews, even uh, mainline Christians, they don't have a lot that's super meaningful for them anymore. Some of them do. And if you, and I always say this, if you have a religion or a culture that is giving you set death, death rituals and you do them and you're like, yes, I am, I am in the depth of my despair, but I am finding comfort. I am doing these tangible actions. Great. Oh my gosh, how lucky are you that you have that? Most people don't. Most people in these developed, secularized countries don't have that. And we are missing something and we need to find ways. And it is, I think, in my opinion, through interacting with the body, through washing the body, through being present with the body, through 
helping dig the grave to lowering the body in the grave, putting the dirt on top of the body, being present at the cremation, pushing the button to start the flames. All of these things are ritual-like actions that can be very powerful when you do them and don't have to have a religious connotation behind them. Something I've really learned from your work is that confronting death helps you live a better life. It oh, helps you of be present in your life. It really can undercut depression and anxiety. Mm-hmm. Um, I love in your videos when you say, you're all going to die, or we are all going to <laughs> die. You are going to die. Um, and since I read, since I first listened to your book when it came out, um, I was realized, oh my God, I'm death positive. And I started reading a lot of books, a lot of books about cadavers and the spirituality of dying, sort of every angle. And it really helps me so much. So I I make sure I always consistently have one book that I'm reading that's about death along with everything else that I'm reading. That's great. And it it really reshapes life so Mm -hmm. much because it really keeps you present. Like, I'm going to die. I don't know when. Mm -hmm. What would I like my day to be like? Right. And so many people, it's not like, you know, it's a cure for depression and anxiety, but look into it. A lot of what's like the hearty thrum underneath your depression and anxiety might be your awareness of your own mortality. It might be these things that are unfulfilled and undressed because death is, you know, the cool breath of death is always on our neck and we're always, he's always present, he or she, however you want to view him, it is always present with us. And yeah, I think that's a wonderful idea to read books, to get involved. Go sit in a cemetery and read a death book. Go to the catacombs and take the guided tour. Go go do anything that will get you closer to the sense of your own mortality. And it's not necessarily going to help your life in a self-help way, although I think that it does that for many people. But what it does is it makes you more self-aware. And that's a big problem with our culture, especially when we're talking about President Cheeto being inaugurated tomorrow, that's someone who is deeply unself-aware mm. on such a profound level. And if you really know death and you're really connected to death, you no longer have the luxury of being unself-aware. Doing something like going to the catacombs also gives me that, like the idea that I'm just a speck in time. You know, I'm just like a speck on this planet. Like all these people had complex feelings. Some of them wrote poetry. Some of them were like the mayor, some of them are this and that, and they're all together in bones. And so it gives me more of that idea of like, I need to serve the community. I need to do something for a larger purpose mm-hmm. than just myself. It helps me to not navel gaze quite as perspective, much. Yeah. Right. Like that, that perspective of being like, I am a speck in time. Right. Well, and I also yeah. feel lucky to live. Like I'm so lucky to live when the Obamas lived. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like when David Bowie lived. Oh my God. Yeah. Well, that's, that's self-awareness too. That, that sort of sense of, this is my actual place in the universe. And I know that the universe is vast and there's so much I don't know. And I am a little speck born to live and die as an infinitesimal blip in the universal order of things. And I can accept that. And I can make my, there's this great quote from Nabokov about, I, I'm not, I'm gonna butcher it, but it's basically like we are all suspended in cradles in the darkness with these just little slats of light that we can look down. And something that my friend and I used to talk about is pimping our cradle mm. in the, in the you know, as in pimp my ride from yeah. MTV. Um, and the idea being like, you have this cradle that's just floating over the void that is your tiny little, tiny little life in this cradle. And all you can do is like decorate the cradle 
and like be a nice person and create this space for yourself that is this tiny little blip of life in the void, in and out of the void, and just make your time as best it can be. Do what you can do, help how you can help, make sure your little cradle is in order, that your mental house is in order, and that's, you know, what more can we actually do as these little tiny ants in the void? I was just imagining the sentient Cheeto going into the catacombs being like, losers, yeah, 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 yeah. I could do it. You're a loser. Like having completely opposite experiences of being there. I'm like, oh, wow. What's his sign? Does anybody know? I can't remember. Does what anybody sign. know? He's a Gemini, I think. He's a Gemini. Oh, hey, you and Obama are both Leos. We are. Yes, we have. Very, I actually have the same uh, birthday as Clinton. Oh no, I'm not Hillary. Bill. Oh. Which is not. Which is like less surprising, really. But. um yeah, well, my birthday is the same as uh, Bill Clinton and uh, who else? Jesse Stamos. Not Jesse. No, Uncle Jesse. Uncle Jesse. John, Stam- John Stamos. John Stamos. Yeah. You can see why I did that. That was not out of nowhere. Um, yeah. I. Uh, wait, what were we talking Oh, the catacombs. I was like, I had a point about the catacombs. No. Oh, I can imagine Trump like thinking that if you aren't in a gilded sarcophagus oh, yeah. in Versailles or something, mm-hmm. yeah. that in the cryptid Versailles that you aren't. Like if you were just, yeah, if you were someone who is like in the anonymous, like, Mm -hmm. can you imagine what Trump's monument to himself in death is going to be? Can you imagine just like a large, like golden phallic Mm -hmm. tower? It would be so phallic. Yeah. So gross. Just giant nuts, you know, like the truck nuts (laughs) that came down and just be like surrounded by truck nuts. (laughs) I was just living in Virginia for a residency and I live right next to like this Confederate cemetery in Richmond and there is a pyramid built to Confederate soldiers. It was really intense. Yeah. Because I haven't lived in the South for a really long time. Because I grew up in Florida for a minute, but I lived in Portland and on the West Coast. And then going there, I was like, oh, there's some Confederate flags around. And I was like, and here's a pyramid. Mm-hmm. Here's a pyramid surrounded by Confederate flags. Yeah. And that's... Well, there was, yeah. a, per- there was a period where like, Egyptian-themed funerary things in Europe and the United States were huge. That's mm-hmm. cool. So there was a period where it was like, oh, yeah, pyramids. Yeah. Yeah. There was a point that they wanted to build in London. There was a proposal to build a death pyramid that was going to hold like five million bodies. And But then they were like, mm, if we put it on this hill, the whole hill is going to collapse under this giant pyramid. So mm. we're not going to do that anymore. Um, but yeah, the pyramids were hot at one point. That's, I wish that there were more sphinxes around, too, then. Yeah, exactly. They didn't go as far as they should have, really. Yeah. Because if you're going to go Egyptian, you might as If you're going to, like, appropriate, you might as well just, like, go whole hog. And, let's just do this. Yeah, let's yeah. just do like, this Oscar in the Wilde Confederate Cemetery. Like, Chase, it had mm-hmm. some sort of an Egyptian sphinx thing coming off of right. it. You know and they have, about? yeah, and they have a glass, because everybody kisses it mm-hmm. with their lipstick. They have a glass plate over now that is covered in lipstick stains that I guess they can, like, come by in Windex. And wow. Then, how did I think about that? Can you, but you did a really cool video after the election mm-hmm. that was about how people voting for that person was based off of their own fear of death and how mm-hmm. that like inspired nationalism in them. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about that for a second? Sure. There's a theory called terror management theory. So someone that I'm hugely influenced by is a man named Ernest Becker. And he wrote a book called The Denial of Death that I really highly recommend to everyone. Um, Although if you can't get past the first like four chapters, that's okay. You're not alone. That's where the good stuff is anyway. Just pro tip. Um, So he was also influential on this group of psychologists who created something called terror management theory based on his work, 
which is the idea that if you are primed very briefly with thoughts of your own death, um, and I don't mean like the work that you've been doing, Beth Pickens, over a long period of time (laughs) where you read death books and really have this interaction with death. I mean, out of nowhere, I come up to you and I have you do a paragraph about a day you spent at the park, and I have you do a paragraph on you being buried at a cemetery. How are you both going to interact with tests that we then give you afterwards? So... For example, they did it with a judge and they primed him with thoughts of his own death and he made punishments for sex workers much harder, much harsher than he would have without it. Um, So what they found is that when you prime people with the thoughts of their own death, it increases their racism, it increases their nationalism, it increases their bigotry, basically. And what was Trump doing for the months leading up to the election? He was going around saying that Mexicans were rapists and murderers, Mm -hmm. that black towns were full of crime and despair. He was just, you're in danger, you're in danger going to these different places and just priming people with thoughts of mortal death and danger that was coming their way and I alone can fix it. I am the justice president. I am the law and order president. And by doing that, he was putting into their minds these things that only increased their nationalism and their desire to keep out anyone that wasn't like them. And boy, did it work. Mm -hmm. You know, he used terror management theory masterfully to his advantage. I saw on Twitter that you're not a protest person. You weren't going to do the march. Did you find something that you're going to do the day after that feels salient for you? Mm, that's a great question. Um, yeah, I'm not doing the the uh, women's march because large groups of people really freak me out. And uh, so I ended up donating to a couple of uh, people who were set to go, but like GoFundMes. <laughs> so I was like, I just have to, you know, someone else should go if I can't go. Um, and that helped me. I don't know. You know, I have a, we talked earlier about doing, doing our own work and doubling down on our own work. And I have, my next book is due in a month. Like it has to be, it's in final edits. Can you tell us about it? It has to be done. Sure, I can tell you about it, but it has to be done um, sooner rather than later. So I'm probably just going to spend the day doing the work that... I have to do and, you know, have to do both under contract and have to do because it's what I can contribute. Um, Yeah, the next book is about death around the world. And I was able to go to all of these really amazing places over the past couple of years and get some really interesting access. And the idea is the American funeral industry definitely thinks that it has the it has the lock down on what is dignified and, and what is proper and respectable about funerals. And my argument is that that is not true at all. And in some other cultures with rituals that we might be horrified by or you know, cleaning their own mummies or keeping skulls and asking them for favors, they might actually be much more rich and interactive and lovely than we're allowing ourselves to believe. Cool. So yeah, that's the idea. That's awesome. That's ex- so it's coming out in 2018? No, it's coming out this year. It's coming out in 2017? Yeah. Oh, when? Wow. It's coming out in, I believe right now it's coming out in October. Great. Wow. Yeah. Do you have the title now? Uh, yes. I don't, I don't know if I'm allowed to say. Okay. Yeah. Well, you can cut it out. Super great book. Yeah. <laughs> but don't tell us on tape because it might oh, drive okay. producer Chris crazy if I'm uh, like, okay, 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 okay. Okay. 50 okay. minutes in, there's a part. Mm-hmm. Um, Super great book about death around the world. Yes, it's it, yes, it's called the super book about the super death book. around the super world. Super book, book, the only book you'll ever need about death around the world. Death for dummies. 
Um, who's publishing it? It's W.W. Norton. Okay. Um, they were my publisher on the first book, and they're my publisher for this book and then another book after it. So That's exciting. Three book deal? Three book, yeah, awesome. two book deal after the first book deal. Yeah, it's great. I, I And they did well. The publicity was everywhere. I mean, that first book did so well. It did, which is why they're letting me write two more. Um, but yeah, it was. it's great. And it's... Um, I don't know. Obviously, I had never written a book before, so I wasn't sure what to expect, and I wasn't sure what success looked like with writing, and I wasn't sure what success would feel like with writing. And the first book was great because it hit a point where it wasn't like the runaway success of the year. Like, it didn't sell a million copies, but it has sold quite a substantial amount of copies, and that every person who... And the reason that I want to continue writing is that every person who has read the book who enjoyed it in some way has a much deeper engagement than someone who's watching the videos, probably. You know, and so when you're an advocate, you're always trying to throw things at the wall to see what's going to stick somehow. And the book is probably the number one thing that I get people feeling really passionately about. Because if you can do a book sort of right, you are taking someone like into something deeper and taking them on a journey and taking them into the inner space of something. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, if people are having that experience with the book, that really helps push along the advocacy that I have. Um, so I'm going to keep doing it until people stop having that experience with, with a book. We don't have that experience anymore. <laughs> it's just... Can you do a series of tweets? Yeah, exactly. Like, Remember this. So you go, yeah, they say, like, we don't so much read anymore. Like, if you could just perform the book in 12-second <laughs> uh, clips over the next two years, that would be great. They're like, we're going to bring Vine back just for... Right. Can you say this in seven seconds? Yeah. Thank you so much. Are you a BoJack Horseman fan? Have you watched that show? I haven't watched it, no. It's really good. Okay, I, I believe I would like it. But they talk about, what if I told you there's a city where books don't matter and nobody reads? And they're talking about Los Angeles. It's really good. Aww. Aww. <laughs> Which isn't true, but like they're talking about Hollywood. It's kind of like I got, I just finished well, people another. people pay somebody to read a book for them and tell them what happens. Oh, yeah. I just finished a graphic novel that's this size and it was like nine months of strenuous labor. And then I got to LA and I would tell people that worked in like the industry, like, whew, I just finished this book. And they would just act like I just like sneezed. Or like yeah, I just like hopped a loogie yeah. in front of them, they'd be like, okay. And I was, because I was just like, I just sat and drew for nine months. And nobody, was, that's fine. Just to your point. Um, that was pretty much, that's it. I want to know, you mentioned something about mushroom, uh, mm -hmm. mushrooms mushroom that are suits. involved. What's a mushroom suit? Mushroom suit is something uh, created by a colleague of mine named Jay Rim. And her idea was that she was going to grow mushrooms that would remediate toxins from the body. I don't mean toxins like in a hippy-dippy way, like, oh, we have to, you know, like cleanse. cleanse the toxins, <laughs> but like would literally like teach the mushrooms to eat your fingernails and your skin cells and your hair to sort of facilitate decomposition and make the soil even more rich around wow. your dead body. And I think that she just, um, this last month, buried the first prototype with someone who had signed up to be the you know in the US pioneer yeah in the US his name was Dennis and there's actually a really sweet documentary about it called I think it's called Suiting Dennis and I think it's on Vimeo wow so if you google that it's a sort of you can meet Dennis before who has since passed away um, you can meet him and see his choice to use the the mushroom suit well that's everything I had to say do you have anything else to say? One, just one last thing, and then I went to some, after that's over, yeah. I had a different question. Mm -hmm. um, 
what death technology are you really excited about? Is there anything new that's sort of interesting to you that's on the edge oh, of yeah. the industry? For sure. Um, well, I mean, two two main things. One would be um, Katrina Spade from Seattle, who's doing body composting. And I was able, and this is in the new book, I was able to go to North Carolina to the body farm where they're testing this mm-hmm. composting. And, you know, how long does it take to compost a body? What kind of mechanical aeration do you need? Um, can you use a pig? Because in, in tests, they usually use pigs to represent humans because it's the closest mm-hmm. animal to us decomposition-wise. Um, but you can never, you know, nothing works like a real donated human to really get to the bottom of it. Um, and the other thing is even more clear and present right now is something called alkaline hydrolysis. I also call it aquamation because alkaline hydrolysis sounds very evil. Um, but what it is is essentially a form of taking the body down to ash very similar from a cremation, except with water, high heat water, and lye, the base chemical. Mm. And so it almost flash decomposes the body over a couple of hours, and you end up with ashes similar to cremation, but it's not a giant mm-hmm. natural gas belching, carbon belching machine. Mm-hmm. Wow. Right, and that's how, because that's how, if you need to get rid of a body quick, right, that's what you're right. supposed to do, is put them in the barrel, but the Did it. you watch Breaking Bad? I didn't know. But did they, did you people, did people ask you if that, the way they got rid of bodies so. has yes. real? Yes. Like, could I go to Home Depot, just saying, maybe I'm not going to, <laughs> I'm not saying. Could one Arturo. go to Home Depot yeah, and get yeah. some kind of a bucket? Arturo could. Yeah, could, if, if Arturo was going to Home Depot, what did they do? Like, they got like a bucket, specific kind of plastic container mm-hmm. and then they would pour some kind of chemicals mm-hmm. on it just, and it yeah, reduced the, the body to nothing but in the a best, really short period of time the best thing about the first season was they had some they tried to do it in a like the the knit-witted like sidekick tried to do it in a bathtub mm-hmm. and the chemicals ate through the bathtub and so then it came through the ceiling mm-hmm. and they were just like gro- like just gross parts Ooh. like like bits of meat and then, like maybe like his jawbone or so, like this thing just like came through the ceiling. Oh, no, I've not. I, I did hear. I, I have heard people mention the buckets of yes. people. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm not an expert on murder. Okay, okay. So I'm okay. like not totally you heard it here. <laughs> a little out of your jurisdiction. Be, I want to be clear. I'm not the expert on murder. And this is not how um, you guys do it at your. No. no okay. No, no, okay. No. Um, this is a it's not green. right now. There's people who are trying to design a better alkaline hydrolysis machine because right now, did you ever see the movie Forever Young with Mel Gibson? No, I, it's about <laughs> it's about cryonics, and there's this big like 1940s steampunk cryonics machine he goes into, mm-hmm. and that's kind of what the machines look like now. They're wow. like way too. It's like too. It's doing too much. It's too much. Um, but if if it could get down to like a very sleek, classy, self-contained machine that you could go load mom into as opposed to the giant industrial chomping cremation machine that we have to now Mm -hmm. I think a lot more people would show up and a lot more people would be willing to interact at some sort of ceremony at Mm -hmm. you know for the for the end of the life of a person if we had better technology and better better spaces better death spaces better death architecture Mm. I have a lot of dreams for the future yeah the cremation pictures i've seen it's a very intimidating it's very intimidating it's very industrial it's just not where you want right to be and it's hard because people do want to show up and we want to encourage people to show up and be there and i think on balance people still have a good experience when they go to the crematory because it's your mom and you want to be there but it's just not you know it's not elegant and safe and cozy in the way you'd want it to be right. 
Sagittarian Matters is produced by Chris Sutton, with assistance by Ponyo Georges. Our theme music is composed by Carolyn Pennypacker Riggs of the band Bouquet. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you next time.